whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. That question is, could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are, and what kind of philosophical work you do. So uh, I'm Zena Hitz. Uh, I teach at a great books college called St. John's College in Annapolis, where I hold the office. It's called Tutor. This is, we don't call ourselves professor. We call ourselves Tutor with a capital P. Um, my training was in uh, classical philosophy. So uh, my, my original work and my scholarly work is in classical philosophy. But more recently, I've been working on uh, writing for general audiences about the value of um, intellectual life and thinking and books and ideas in a general way. So I have a book coming out very shortly called Lost in Thought, in which I defend uh, the value of um, philosophy, intellectual life, intellectual work, reflection, books and ideas for their own sake. Okay, I th- I suspect you will be you will be singing to the the choir on this one. Um, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna dive right in with the first question. So as you know, this this podcast is inspired by Iris Murdoch. Her words appear at the very beginning, telling us that philosophy is not self expression. However, she also wrote, uh, "To do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth." So. Would you say that your temperament influences your philosophical work? And if so, how? Uh, so I, I'm tempted to start by uh, teasing you because I, I, I feel as if um, part of the, the laboratory aspect of this podcast might be about the narcissism of philosophers. So I, I was tempted to say that one of my temp- the features of my temperament is, is narcissism. And so I love to talk about myself. So I'm so happy to be here. Um, but I think the more interesting, <laughs> thanks for laughing. <laughs> I think the more interesting parts of my temperament, as far as philosophy is concerned, and I'm going to go from the more serious to the less serious. I think my original attraction to philosophy uh, was that I have a, a visceral hatred of deception, illusion. Uh, I have a, a deep fear. You'll, I know you're going to ask what my fears later, but uh, one of my deepest fears is to be deceived or, or also relatedly to be inauthentic, uh, to not be fully um, in keeping with what I believe. So I think it was that maybe that originally got me interested in philosophy. I also really like to argue. I'm a combative, uh, choleric sort of temperament. Uh, so I'm a I'm a fighting philosopher. I like the I like the combat aspect of it. Um, it's less uh, fashionable these days to like, but I'm I'm not ashamed to admit it. And I think the last thing is that I uh, I have a playful temperament. So uh, I'm I'm most myself I think when I'm not taking things too seriously. And the the combativeness combined with the the playfulness makes me into a bit of a 
it, I'm in the demolition derby school of philosophy. Uh, I sort of like to watch things come apart. You know, I like to watch things crash and come to pieces. My favorite part of the colloquium is when the counterexample brings down the the uh, thesis of the talk. And and it's not something, it's not just competitive. It's also something I enjoy in myself. I, I, I somewhat masochistically feel a certain pleasure when I feel that my own illusions or my own false opinion is is cracking against hard reality. So I, I'd say that's the way that my temperament influences my philosophical way of being. That, that's great, Zina. I, I have to say, though, I think the fact that you thought I was asking about narcissism tells us <laughs> more about you than it does than it does about me. But uh, 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 I no, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, no, I thought you were interested in studying narcissism, not that you. Yes, were, yes, yes, exactly. exactly. The narcissism yeah. of others is fascinating. <laughs> I will, so here's a here is a follow up. So it sounds like you've already partly answered this, but I'm curious about it. So the, the sort of hatred of deception, love of argument, playfulness, has philosophy? Those were reasons why you were attracted to philosophy. Has philosophy satisfied those urges? Oh yes. I mean, philosophy is more or less. Um, the activity which satisfies all three of those things uh, in in the most sort of enduring way, in a way that I actually can't imagine many other things would. So yes, for me, it's um, it's been a very satisfying way of living my life. Excellent. So this, I think, this leads fairly naturally into my question too, especially the idea of being argumentative and playful and playing with refutation. So question two is. Do you really believe your philosophical views? So this, I think, is really an interesting question because when I was younger, um, when all of these qualities, uh, the, the hatred of illusion, the love of fighting and playfulness were actually a bit stronger. I've gotten a bit mellow in my middle age. Uh, when, I was young, when I was young and starting out in philosophy, uh, I really was a bit hostile to holding any view at all. Uh, I wasn't skeptical. I, I think I always thought there was some kind of truth, but... I was very uh, uncertain and unwilling to commit myself. And of course, I, you know, I had a um, a religious conversion as an adult. So at that point, I, I quite a lot of views of mine settled and fell into place. Uh, very substantive views, metaphysical views, ethical views, and so on. What's interesting to me about myself <laughs> is that, sorry, it's narcissism. I was, what I find fascinating about myself is um, that those beliefs are not actually, they've informed my philosophizing. They've driven, especially my recent work on intellectual life in a lot of ways. But they have not taken away from me, I don't think, either the love of combat or the fear of illusion or the playfulness. So I think. Um, I'm a bit, I hold beliefs and I sometimes defend them, but for me, the real joy of philosophy is still in finding the space where I don't feel that I know what I'm doing, uh, where I don't know the answer to something, where I don't have a view, reaching past whatever I think to that space, um, and playing around there, um, in the, in the realm of uncertainty where anything seems possible. So uh, I'm definitely much more um, on the, I like, I like the process of philosophy. I like putting things together and seeing them fall apart. Um, I'm definitely not a, I think there are some philosophers who are more 
uh, I don't know what the right word is, conclusion driven, uh, theory driven. Um, I'm definitely way on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, I like the dance. Uh, I'm not so interested in the product. So we've been, this all is very positive. We've been talking a lot about the ways in which philosophy is satisfying to you. And I guess that's fitting, given that you have a book coming out about the pleasures of intellectual life. Right. Uh, but but I do want to ask you, this is question three. If you weren't a philosopher, do you have an idea of what you might do instead? Well, um, th- there's different ways of thinking about that question. There's, I think, um, so the one way of asking that is, so if I tomorrow were told I could never do philosophy again, what would I do? And there's another question, which I thought was maybe perhaps a more interesting or revealing question, which is, um, what might I have done, you know, if I went back the garden of forking paths earlier to um, some place where I might not have done philosophy, what might I have ended up doing? And I think then I've always had, I've always been a bit of a performer. Uh, I've always liked performing. I liked theater and music when I was young. I liked uh, comedy. I liked comic acting. Uh, I liked singing. So there was a time when I was in graduate school when I thought that I should quit and become a nightclub singer. That was a sort of a jokey fantasy I had for a time. Or I've thought about, um, you know, comic acting, my, my, my lost talent for comic acting, which now only makes its way into the classroom. So those are the things which I feel like uh, connect more to, are more revealing of who I am, uh, the, the, the performer. Um, and I think that I much rather be doing philosophy than that, because I think that the, the thing that I like about it, which is again, that the, the playfulness and the, the seeing things get turned upside down, um, that you see in most kinds of interesting performance and especially in comedy. Um, that's something that I do more of in philosophy in a more interesting and deep way. So, so I don't really have regrets about that. Were you more interested in the question about like what I really might regret? Like, what do I feel is missing from my life that um, I might recover if I didn't do philosophy? I, I was happy for you to take it in any direction. I love okay. the the fact that you're a, you're enough of a philosopher that you began answering my question by making a distinction, <laughs> and, and then and then then charitably answering the more interesting version of the question. That uh, I feel like your, your skills as a teacher were were brought to bear on this uh, impressively. I mean, do you think you could have been an an uh, a comic actor or a singer? Were those you said it was a sort of a playful idea, but what were those? ever real options that you you uh, they were definitely not far enough along to count as real options i actually had a tragic um something tragic happen to me which was that in in high school my uh drama teacher uh never cast me in any of the plays um so i was uh deeply discouraged by this fact and was convinced i had no talent and uh, so gave up and actually didn't even do any theater in college which would have been a perfect time to do it so I, so I, I never got to a point where it was at all serious. I still sometimes think, uh, you know, in some uh, some cafe where, or you know, minor league jazz club where nothing really matters, you know, someday I'm going to step out in front of the crowd and everyone will see this person who no one's ever known existed. I mean, that's kind of a teenage uh, dream of mine. But you know, they, they, these things happen. I mean, they, they they live in you for a long time. Uh, your your teenage your teenage narcissist I think never really dies. Uh, 
No, it's clear. It's clear that yours hasn't seen it. That's good. That's good to see. It, uh, um, Thanks for stopping the generalization. That was very charitable of you. I appreciate it. Um, I mean, I, yeah, my my colleague Steve Yablo, who is who is extremely funny, says one of the things he loves about teaching is that it's basically stand up with very low expectations. Like, <laughs> exactly. The students exactly. are grateful for any attempt at performance or entertainment. So, do do you feel like the teaching sort of scratches the itch? The performing oh, absolutely, itch? absolutely, yes, yes, and and they will laugh at anything. Yeah. And I think it also, it, it's um, it's useful in the classroom, especially my classrooms, which are small, uh, goofing around, um, joking, it can, it can make the class work better. Uh, it can put people at ease uh, and make them feel more um, like what happens in class is something spontaneous and real and not just a performance, ironically enough. So I... I I, I'm actually happy with how that part of my personality has gotten worked into worked into my everyday life. That's great. So, so I have two more questions. So, question four um, is continuing on the the vein of things other than philosophy. And the question is, what is your greatest non philosophical achievement? Well, so this could also be have been the other way I answered the previous. <laughs> Sorry, this is very academic. <laughs> uh, so that's fine. Let me answer with um, by going back to uh, principle two B in the previous column. <laughs> uh, the, so, so, uh, so I at one point left the philosophy profession and uh, joined a monastery. Is something I talked about in the early parts of my book that's coming out. Um, and, uh, that was on the one hand, extremely satisfying and something that I miss a lot. So I suppose if I were going to have to quit philosophy tomorrow, you know, I would go back to the monastery. That's the other part of the previous question, but it's also true that my going there was uh, calling it achievement is kind of off because, um, you know, if, if you're as, uh, take these things as seriously as I did as a religious calling of some kind, you don't think of it as something you're achieving, but rather something that is being offered to you, which you then accept. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't have the flavor of achievement, but it, that said, it was very, very difficult. And, uh, you know, I had to pack up all my things and resign my job and subject myself to a lot of uncertainty, say goodbye to all of my friends, um, not being sure when I would see them again. And that, that difficulty was, uh, on the one hand, uh, very challenging. On the other hand, uh, I, I think I got a lot out of it. I'm not quite the same person as I was before I did that. Uh, and so I think that that's probably the, the thing that I've done that's non-philosophical. In fact, was in the moment anti-philosophical, which uh, I think I'm proudest of, uh, even though I'm not, I'm not sure how much you know, I pers my own personal virtues had to do with it. Well, there are so many follow-ups to that that I want to ask. <laughs> I'm going to try. I'm going to try to think about how to keep this manageable. One question, I suppose, is whether, by contrast with going to the monastery, you, philosophy does seem like an a, an arena in which it's appropriate to think about achievements. The other question is whether the ways in which you've changed through that experience have affected how you do philosophy. I guess this goes back to the question about. I guess not exactly temperament, but but sort of orientation to the world. I, you could a answer either of those questions, those follow ups. Right. So I think I'll, I'll start with the second one, and if you if you want to come back to the first one, you can. I think it has changed my philosophizing uh, in the following way. So it, 
Um, it made me, um, because of, uh, because I underwent this process of deciding that I might never work in professional philosophy again, or really live as an ordinary person in the world again. And because I, and I was gone for three years, which is a substantive chunk of time. I mean, it's not forever, but it's also not nothing. I came back, I was, I felt much uh, freer from social pressures or um, pressures from academic culture to do one thing rather than another. And so that's actually, I think, uh, I, I've been more uh, a freer thinker since then, uh, a freer writer. It's when I started writing for general audiences, which is something that I've basically always wanted to do, but somehow never always felt that I ought to be doing something else. You know, I ought to be publishing another article. I ought to be writing a scholarly book. I ought to be preparing my teaching. I ought to be doing this. I ought to be doing that. Uh, somehow the, um, that, that, that choice, making that choice and being away for a time has made me freer to do the kind of intellectual work that I enjoy doing that I think is worth doing and without thinking as much about, uh, you know, whether it's going to, um, how it's going to affect my standing, uh, within the academic community, just something that haunted me for a time before that. I don't think. I've never, my attachment to philosophy as such, I think at its deepest level has always been the way I've described it. It's never been about achievement. It's always been living in the, the philosophical moment where uh, ideas generate and crash against each other um, like waves on the rocks. Um, that's always been at the core, I think, of my intellectual way of being. But like many young people, I, you know, you you want to move up in the world and I, you know, you're exposed in this to this, I don't, it depends on what kind of graduate program you went to, but I was always in very competitive uh, places. So you get kind of injected with this uh, high spirit of competition and you're, it becomes uh, the kinds of success that you get become almost addictive. And you, 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 it, it, it feels like something good. It's success after all. You're in fact uh, tying yourself down and and limiting yourself to whatever you're getting approval for, and I think I did. I, I, I was pretty seriously um, uh, disabled in that respect <laughs> for some time, and I think I did need to go away for a time to uh, recover what I, um, you know, what I really cared about and what I really wanted to do. Uh, so that's when, for instance, I was a student at St. John's uh, as an undergraduate. It's not a, a high prestige job, but it's a job that I love. And uh, it's not something I would have quite had the courage to do, to do before uh, I went to the monastery. And that's also, I'll just say that's part of what the book is about. The book is partly about this particular process that I went through of, uh, of um, getting somehow my original intellectual interest becoming corrupted in some way, and then my attempt to recover it. and. Uh, that's it's both what I describe in the book and also what I try to express in some way in the book. That's great. Thank you, Zina. I think you really managed to address both follow-ups uh, in one there. So All right. uh, All right. I think I think we're ready for the the final question. Question five, also inspired by Iris Murdoch. So it's another Murdoch quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. What is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? <laughs> you know, I do really like this question. I don't know why. 
<laughs> so, and once I once again, I like with the temperament. I for some reason I had I thought of three things. So the first is something I've already alluded to. I have a, a deep seated fear of inauthenticity. One of the things I fear most is becoming uh, the sort of person I dislike, or to live in a way that's deeply out of keeping with my deepest values. And it's related in ways I don't quite understand. I, I don't really understand what that desire is or what it's related to, particularly. Um, I'm sure it's more complex than it looks. I'm sure that underneath it is something uh, dark and selfish like everything else. But the it's, it is connected also to this fear of being um, under an illusion or subjecting others to illusions, a fear of living in a world that's governed by illusion rather than truth. So that's that's kind of the 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 lofty philosophical fear that I have, if I could call it that. I mean, it's very primal. Actually, it's not it's not something I studied or cultivated. It's it it's it was in me from a young age. It emerged when I was a teenager with great fierceness. But it is nonetheless, I think, something lofty. Um, but you know, I I think I would be being inauthentic and dishonest. If I didn't acknowledge the fear that I have, which I think I share with virtually everyone, I, you know, if the fear of death is very strong. I have a very strong fear of death. I don't really believe it's ever going to happen to me, but partly because I live in this state of delusion about my own immortality, um, it, it, it finds its way back in strange ways. One of the ways it manifests itself is a fear of nature. <laughs> so I, I love the outdoors, but there's something, for instance, about plants that I find terrifying or, you know, we're in quarantine now and everyone, at least everyone middle class is, is got their sourdough starter. Okay. Now. <laughs> I find sourdough starter terrifying. It takes over, you know, it, it just grows and you have to continually feed it and it, it grows and grows seemingly without limit. And there's something about the growing without limit, um, that, that, um, the sort of limitless growth of certain kinds of life, natural life, that I think is is somehow terrifying and destructive. And it reminds me of, you know, being eaten by piranhas or, or swallowed by vines in the jungle or uh, whatever it is. So I, I've always loved um, art or film or novels, literature that reflected on that human experience of being um, lost in, in a, in a um, uh, indifferent predatory nature. So Moby Dick is one of the great novels, I think, on that theme. Um, or, you know, Werner Herzog, of course, it's like all he thinks about. So I, I, I think that fear also is, is something that I, that I live with, although it, 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 it may not manifest itself philosophically in quite the same way. It probably manifests itself more in my ordinary way of being. That's great. Well, I have to randomly recommend a short story. If you don't know it, there's a short story. I think it's called The Voice in the Night or The Voice in the Dark by William Hope Hodgson. Oh, which is, right. Very it, it's an amazing story about about isolation at sea that also involves people being attracted to eating because they're starving on the boat. The sailors start to eat uh, a fungus that is growing, and the fungus slowly starts to sort of internally become. <laughs> they, they become fungal. It's it's. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy. Oh, that's it. deeply yeah. terrifying. 
my yeah. gosh. It's one of I'm the most already, scary I'm already stories. Frightened. I'm already frightened just, just even hearing about it. Okay. It's horrible. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's hard. Uh, yeah. Can can you ask a follow-up that gets us me out of this this immortal terror of becoming like a fungus or being eaten? No, I, I, I'm sorry. I think I think that's where we're gonna we're gonna end with terror no. of fungus. Although, actually, we're gonna we're gonna end by returning to the the question of when your book is coming out and anything else you want to uh, tell people about it. Well, it's coming out very shortly. So its official release date is the end of May, but I'm told it will be in warehouses at the end of this month. So just in a couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited. Uh, And one of the things I like about it is that it, it, it covers kind of a lot of ground. There's, I feel like there's something in it for everybody and it, it really is meant to be for a general audience. So, uh, you know, it's something you can uh, start and skip or you can work your way all the way through it, uh, as I think most people have um, who have read it. At least they sound like they have. And uh, anyway, and I, I hope it's also something which um, doesn't subject the reader to illusions. So it, it is meant to uh, invite the reader along on an inquiry um, rather than manipulating or, or, or creating uh, uh, sort of shadows and fog that could hide something. Uh, so I, I hope I've succeeded in that. I, that's really um, because of my deep fear of, of inauthenticity and my hatred of the thought of living in a world of illusion. That's, that's one of the things I would want most from my book, that it, it be a way uh, for people to figure things out um, rather than getting pushed or pulled in one direction or another, which I, I feel like is a lot of what we read these days is... Um, someone trying to uh, control your thinking. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think we ought to be more friendly with one another, not try to control each other's thinking. Well, as someone who has, has read the book, or at least an earlier version of it, I can say that it's, it is very thought-provoking, and it's inspiring, and it's very beautiful. So um, I oh, hope people will, nice. will, will go out and read it. So I think that's all we have time for. I'm going to say thank you very much, Zena, for appearing on Five Questions. It's been wonderful to talk to you. And Wonderful to talk to you, Kieran. I'm very honored to be on your podcast. So thank you for inviting me. Thanks for coming. Bye.